Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. This three-part miniseries, Innovation in Private Markets, looks at the disruptive innovations in the structure of private investing from the perspective of asset owners and managers. The idea was the brainchild of Daniel Adamson at Capital Constellation, the sponsor of these conversations. Daniel is the president of Capital Constellation and was a guest on the show last year. That conversation, describing the unique consortium of large asset owners, is a terrific primer for this miniseries and is replayed in the feed. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Steve Mosley, the head of alternative investments at Alaska Permanent Fund, a $70 billion sovereign endowment that supports the citizens of Alaska. Steve leads a small team based in Juneau, Alaska, that is one of the most active participants in what he calls the space in between general partners and limited partners. Across private equity, venture capital, infrastructure, and private credit, Steve and the fund are considered one of the most innovative investors in private markets. Our conversation covers Steve's path to Alaska, the permanent fund's unique pool of capital, the history of its investment strategy, and the development of the private asset portfolio. We then turn to the attributes of fund investments and his focus on adding value beyond fund investments, including co-investments, stakes, and seeding. We touch on perspectives on managing through an expensive pricing environment, secondary transactions, future innovation in the portfolio, and the challenges of talent acquisition and retention. Please enjoy my conversation with Steve Mosley in this, the first of three episodes of Innovation in Private Markets. 
Steve, great to see you. Thanks. Good to be here, Ted. Well, why don't we start with your background? It's always fun to hear you know, how someone got into a seat like this. I'll give you some highlights and some lowlights. I was born in Boston. I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, college town, very academic family. Learned a lot, but probably very little of direct professional relevance. And then I went to uh, Wesleyan University. It is a sort of quintessentially liberal arts-oriented academically focused, not vocationally focused school. So when I was a senior at age 21, ready to graduate, I had no idea what I wanted to do, what I wanted to be when I grew up. I had no idea. And I had no identifiable, verifiable, sort of marketable skills. So the good news for me is that the investment banks all came to campus to recruit. So I didn't need to have a carefully honed plan or a thoughtful path to something bigger and better. I just stumbled into those interviews. My first interview, which I remember was with Morgan Stanley, was a complete disaster, which is what you would expect if you if you knew how little I knew then. It had to be a disaster, but I didn't know what to expect. And I remember the uh, interviewer asking me why I was interested in investment banking. And I had actually prepared a short response to that, which was kind of the answer to a different question, which is why are you interested in commercial banking? Because as we've since learned, commercial banking is different from investment banking. And you can't guess what investment banking is from the title of the category. So I told her that I was interested in supporting the growth of these companies by lending them money. And I babbled for a little bit before she said, you know, that's that's a different business. That's commercial banking. And the interview didn't end there, but it didn't get better. By the time I stumbled through four or five of those, I had kind of learned some things to say and apparently learned enough to get an offer from Merrill Lynch. So I went to work as a financial analyst on Wall Street, which was a great thing to do for lots of people for lots of reasons. But I think it was especially good for me because of this wonderful but impractical liberal arts background. You do learn some practical skills when you get into an investment bank and you work hard for a long period of time. And the working hard part had some value, I think, for me too. And then I also had the opportunity to go work for Merrill Lynch in Tokyo for about a year and a half and then London. So I'm still grateful to Merrill for allowing me to do that. This is just after the bubble burst in Japan. I was convinced at that time that I wanted to do something really interesting, but it wasn't investment banking. I'd figure out what the options are. Graduate school seemed like the right place to reflect on that. So I did go back to school, looked around the landscape as I was graduating from business school, and concluded that I couldn't find anything more interesting than investment banking. So I ended up going back to what I'd been doing before. And it was interesting and worthwhile for a lot of the same reasons it was interesting and worthwhile as a new analyst fresh out of school. I was working in healthcare, healthcare investment banking at CS First Boston in the late 90s when they launched the latest iteration for First Boston of a private equity business. It was a mid-market buyout fund called Windward Capital. I went to work at Windward. I ended up working in what now we would probably call small cap or mid cap buyouts for about five years until that company essentially dissolved. The partners split up and us, the young folks, had to uh, figure out something different or better to do. So I ended up going to work in California in La Jolla at a place called Pacific Corporate Group, which sadly doesn't exist anymore, but was at that time a here to Hamilton Lane and to Stepstone today. And I signed up to help them invest two direct investment vehicles that they had raised. The nature of that business, of the private equity consulting business, is that 
the economics aren't very interesting. It's sort of the maybe the least economically interesting part of the whole private market ecosystem, but a potentially valuable platform for doing other things. And the uh, founder of PCG leveraged his consulting relationship with CalPERS, with New York State Common, with several other well-known institutional investors, got committed capital for direct investment strategies, but there was nobody there to do the investing. So he built up a team slowly. I was part of that team. I joined to focus on this co-investment and minority equity investing. We called the strategy corporate partnering. It was a Pacific corporate group that I first started looking at and committing capital to private equity funds at the same time that I was working on these direct investment strategies. And that I will call it sort of the space between those activities, but really it's the integration of the fund commitments and co-investments and direct investments that I didn't invent, but I recognized was interesting. You probably know that there's this common sense out there that there's a lot more sex appeal in the GP side of the ledger than in the LP side. It was not an intersection of activity that a lot of people were interested in. So there was a chance for me to, I guess, play a more significant role in the co-investment market as it grew. So co-investments have been around as long as investing has been around, but it hadn't really been institutionalized here in 2004, 2005, 2006. And still today, and I can give you a little more color on what's happened in between, but still today, I think that area of intersection between kind of conventional GP strategies and customary LP strategies, I think there's a lot of room to continue to develop activity and thought process there. So before we dive into that, how did you end up going to Alaska Permanent? People often wonder about that, although the people that wonder about it aren't in my family or or my close friends, because among that group, who's known me for a long time, they thought it seemed sort of obvious that I would end up in Alaska. And that's only because it's an exciting and interesting place. There are a lot of outdoor sports I like that are everywhere here, because we have in Alaska, not everything, but lots of outdoor sports. But it was actually a connection, like a lot of these things, I guess, a human connection. One of my colleagues at Pacific Corporate Group was Marcus Frampton. And he and I managed these direct investment vehicles for CalPERS and for others, had the experience of working together, liked it. Uh, Apparently, we both liked it because Marcus joined Alaska before I did. And he called me up after he had been hired to focus on infrastructure to see if I had an interest in helping Alaska bring in-house their private equity activity. I know that the structure and the pool of capital that you're overseeing for Alaska is fairly unique in how it came about. And I'd love to have you tell the story of what this pool of capital is and how it serves the people in Alaska. Yeah, thanks for asking that question. It is super interesting to me. I think it's almost unique in political history. It is, of course, more interesting to Alaskans than the rest of the world, in part because one use of proceeds of this fund that I'll describe in a sec is an annual dividend that gets paid to everybody in the state, which, as you can imagine, makes us very popular and get some attention. In fact, that was part of the construct. But stepping back in time a little bit, the state of Alaska only became a state in 1959. And then it wasn't until 1969 that they discovered oil. And it was a big find. That oil had real value. And relative to the size of the economy, the population at that time, it was really gargantuan, like that Beverly Hillbilly kind of concept, you know, where it starts squirting out of the ground. And to put that in perspective, the first lease sale which I think was in 1969 or 1970 in Alaska, 
was $900 million. So $900 million in those 1970 dollars went to the state treasury. But the state was tiny and the economy was stalled. The whole budget, the Alaskan annual government budget for every state trooper, every public school teacher, and every snowplow was only $219 million. So this entity that was spending about $200 million a year suddenly had $900 million to spend. And I wish I could say that the politicians who were making the judgment at that time set it aside for the future. They didn't think about college savings, though. What happened is what you might more cynically expect, which is that the money was sprayed out the door. There are plenty of good uses for capital in the state of Alaska at that time and now. And some of it was invested in infrastructure that I'm sure contributed to the economy and supported the population in different ways. But it was $900 million. So it was a little bit like a 17-year-old high school rookie in the NBA, or actually a little bit like what happens when people win the lottery. I think there's some good stories when people win the lottery, but the sad version is that the money gets wasted. And so in Alaska, if you were lucky enough to be here in 1972 and you had an interest in pursuing education in any field of any type, you could write on physical paper one paragraph request for funding for activity. And there was so much money that none of these requests were rejected. So as an example, I know a woman in town here who was here, who was one of the beneficiaries of that early terrible spending policies. She proposed that she wanted to study pottery, but there wasn't a good place to study pottery in the city of Juneau. So she got a grant to live in another part of the state and study pottery for a month before coming back to Juneau to resume her job. So it was essentially kind of paid vacation. So money was wasted. But I mentioned that not just to unload some cynical perspective on government, but because my understanding of the way things developed then is that the mistakes that were made then were recognized, they were identified, the 900 million disappeared, and there was a recognition that this resource was large but finite. And it informed the decision-making that followed, which I would characterize as really truly brilliant. And I think almost unique in political history, at least in the United States, in that they designed a system to protect future savings from the politicians of the future, from the structural incentives that will always exist for governments to increase taxes on the margin and to spend on the margin. So while the incoming cash flows were all royalties, most of it oil, but also uranium, gold, and other things. Those inflows were invested in that corpus, the principal of the permanent fund, which is today around $60 billion, in which we operate in combination with a retained earnings account of another $15 billion or so. It's protected constitutionally. They set up barriers that are high enough, that are wide enough, that are substantial enough that that capital is safe. The way the politicians, the way Governor Jay Hammond described it in, in 1976 when the permanent fund was formed was to say that they wanted to protect the capital from the greedy politicians of the future. And that was said in a way that was not meant to be comical or cynical. It was really the view of Alaskan politicians at that time, and I'm not sure it's changed very much. Today in Alaska, the oil is running out. The fund was originally set up because they recognized that inevitable reality, that this fund would need to replace the oil. And so what's happened effectively is that that finite, depletable resource has been replaced with an 
infinite resource, a resource that's not only sustainable, but should compound and can grow as quickly as we allow it to grow. The principal component of what you described then, I imagine has a very long duration to it. How have you gone about thinking about how to invest that portion of the capital? It's true. The duration is theoretically infinite. And our mission, our purpose is to provide for all current and future generations of Alaskans. When the fund was formed, they invested first and only in government bonds. This is the history of a lot of public funds and other large investors in the US. They invested only in government bonds, then they threw in a little equity, then they threw in a little international equity. They were active even in the beginning in the mid 80s, active in direct real estate investing. But outside of a few buildings scattered around the lower 48, the capital was all deployed in liquid equities and liquid bonds. They did begin to move into other alternatives through funds of funds beginning about 15 years ago. But it was a significant moment. It may not be widely appreciated as this, but I think it was a significant time in the permanent funds history just about nine years ago when they decided to bring a lot of that alternatives activity in-house. So that was the time at which we shifted from complete reliance on a small, slightly dysfunctional funds of funds program that covered private credit, hedge funds, and private equity to a differently managed program that relies a lot more on internal investment decisions. So just to get a sense of the scope, how big is the fund today and how much of it is allocated to private markets? So the the overall fund is about $75 billion today and 16% of that Today, it's marked at about $12.5 billion is private equity. Altogether, we have, excluding real estate and excluding hedge funds, it's about $20 billion in assets across what we think of as actively managed private markets. So let's dive into how you've approached it. You came at this seat with this hybrid of investing in funds and some direct investing. You had a clean slate. There wasn't any really, you know, there's some fund of funds, but you're going to clean that out. So how did you go about it? It's worth saying, just to frame it, that we didn't have to get rid of fund of funds. If that had been the right way to do it, we could have continued to live with those. And we don't have a strict rule against fund of funds. But you can imagine that that wouldn't be my orientation. And it was the intent then and now to build a team internally that can eliminate some of the inefficiencies that exist with a fund of fund structure. There was, a, would say, a valuable foundation had been constructed by third-party managers at that time. They'd made they had made a large number of small commitments to some high-quality managers. Not every one of those managers was a keeper, but there were some good ones there. And then, of course, I'd been in the business for a while, so I had my own sense of who was capable and what areas. And we could be fairly deliberate and thoughtful about how to build the portfolio. We wanted to leverage the existing fund of funds and separate account relationships and advisors. And we did do that. It was about a billion dollars in hedge funds a billion dollars in private credit and a billion dollars in private equity, which sounds like kind of a lot altogether, but these were all completely outsourced. We did use the relationships behind that billion dollars, I think, at least selectively, and tried to migrate away from what was a relatively expensive, highly encumbered clumsy approach to the market. Through no fault of the advisors and funds of funds managers, it was just too many layers. And there are organizations that still run their programs that way, 
the permanent fund was insulated from the decision-making by about three or four layers of consultants. It was a whole giant cloud, a configuration of consultants and advisors. And if you're trying to intentionally insulate yourself from the responsibility or from the decision-making, and if you don't believe that there are opportunities that you can identify on your own, and if you don't think that there's intellectual capital of value there, then you would keep all of those layers of consultants in place. But our view then, and our view now, was we needed to take out some of those layers and the benefit, the reward for that wouldn't be just avoiding some fees. It's actually sort of the smallest component of the incremental value that we identified, but that we would be able to pursue activity that we couldn't pursue in that format. We could make investments that we couldn't make in this indirect way through multiple layers of consultants. So what does a portfolio look like today on the private side? Well, we have, I don't know how private equity Today's 16, with a plan to grow to 19 over the next three years, is the fastest growing component of this, not just because of the expected returns or the actual returns, not just because it's compounding at a faster rate, but because it's a natural match with the overall duration of the fund. So private equity is in some ways the center of the action, but not enough of the action. (laughs) It's certainly not the whole game for us. We've got a substantial absolute return portfolio. We've got about $2.5 billion in private credit and infrastructure. And those neighboring activities, those activities that overlap on the margin with private equity are also actively managed internally. So let's just start with private equity. How are you going about it? I guess I'd say to start to answer at a high level, there was a need to create a diversified portfolio from the beginning and to capture growth in different areas of the world. So we did what you would expect, what every investor does, which is with a pool of capital like that, to diversify across strategies, across geographies, and so on across managers. But with that said, the mandate from the board was very broad. In fact, it couldn't really be broader. It was pursue these activities and deliver attractive returns, no tactical designation, no strategic designation. So we started close to home. My first large commitments were to managers that I'd backed in the past, and it wouldn't make sense for us to create an index. Instead, we've tried to identify what we think are the best managers in a broad range of categories, back them in different ways, and continue from there. So as you drill down, what does the best managers mean to you? There would be a quantitative answer. And I guess in the end, the best manager is the one that most consistently delivers the best, the highest risk-adjusted returns. But Adjusting for risk is more art than science, and we care ultimately about the quality of the overall portfolio, not any specific manager. But having said that, we are looking for a number of things that probably aren't very different from the way another LP would look at it, though we may be weighting these considerations differently. And at the highest level there, these categories would be strategy, We care about the team. We care about the track record, of course. Among those, strategy is the most important. That's where we invest the most time and energy. We're trying to identify managers that are pursuing a sustainable opportunity and pursuing it with a verifiable, an identifiable and verifiable competitive advantage. And if we can find a lot of managers with those simple characteristics and they're not perfectly correlated, then we're headed down a road in the right direction. 
So a lot of times we hear people focus more on the team aspect of who the people are than the strategy itself. How have you thought about weighing and balancing the two of those? If it were a thought experiment, I would say I'd start with the strategy and then try to build confidence that the team that's in place has the tools, differentiated tools to execute on that strategy. So the unique thing in a life sciences fund might not be their tactical approach to the market or their market focus. It might be the degree and the way in which those managers are equipped to fight that battle. So so I wouldn't want to suggest that the team's not important. In fact, there's probably nothing more important. But analytically, I think starting with a market opportunity and then trying to identify the best team to pursue, to execute on that market opportunity, that seems to have led to the best outcomes for me. And how do you view the relative merits of that underlying strategy or market opportunity? Well, I like to say that we're not backwards looking. No investor claims that they are, but we do observe and consume a lot of information. And I guess all the studies, including those seemingly impractical liberal arts studies in economics and statistics, have value when we're looking for an opportunity where there's some sustainable growth. Like all private market investors, we should be approaching that question in a way that's different from public market investors because the duration of our investment can be expected to be, almost needs to be, longer. So a strategic opportunity isn't a trading opportunity. A strategic opportunity is something that will persist, hopefully for multiple decades. But that judgment's harder to make, and our thought process will revolve around the typical life of a fund, which starts with a five-year investment period. So I'm curious, over these last bunch of years where you've been in the seat and you've taken this portfolio from $1 billion to $12.5 in a relatively short period of time, it's not novel that investors have embraced private equity. The fund flows, the dollar sizes of funds have gone up and up and up. How have you thought about what you're trying to accomplish with those investments? You're right that it's not novel. I'm sorry to say it's almost the opposite of that. In fact, part of the challenge that all private equity investors face these days is that everybody wants to be in private equity, which can be a great thing for a short period of time, but not a great thing for a very a very long period of time. There are two objectives that matter most, and I would say that we deserve a pretty high grade for delivering on the first, and there's a lot of work to do on the second. The first being high risk-adjusted returns. We want to deliver the best numbers, and I feel, and I think the rest of the team feels a little competitive about that. So we want the private equity portfolio to deliver the highest possible absolute returns, and we want our portfolio to be appropriately risk managed. The second objective is more elusive, though I think there's a lot of, let's call it latent, or there's a lot of potential value in this, which is that all of the energy and effort invested in our private equity activity and all of the intellectual capital that we can share or extract from these talented, specialized, differentiated managers all over the planet. All of that value has the potential to amplify what we're doing in other parts of the overall permanent fund portfolio. So to the extent that we can apply our our cumulative learnings in private equity, to the extent that we can apply that to inform our judgments in public equities or in credit or in real assets, then we've kind of like adding a few basis points to our private equity returns, really. So we have access to a lot of data. We have to use that carefully. We have access to a lot of intellectual capital. We protect that, but I believe that there's room to apply that in ways that we haven't yet fully explored. 
So a lot of times when you hear people talk about that cross-fertilization of ideas, it's often within a direct investment organization. And I'm curious, you started and came into this seat in this, you know, let's call it a hybrid between being a fund investor and doing co-invests. In addition to the fund investments, what have you done within that portfolio to try to either add incremental return or these incremental insights? Well, if I go back to something I said before, which may seem obvious, but I think is an important observation, our board didn't direct us to invest in any particular way. They want to build private markets exposure for all of the reasons that we've discussed and and others. And we don't have any special financial, we as investors here at the Permanent Fund have no special incentive to invest directly in an operating company versus through an overpriced fund of funds, except to the extent that the expected returns are different or it fits into our portfolio in a different way. So here's the point that I think is both obvious and important. It's our job to find the best mechanism or combination of mechanisms for deploying capital in private markets. And sometimes that involves lots of layers of managers. In other cases, there are opportunities we think we can't address, we can't capture unless we approach it more directly. And all of that has to happen in the context of reality. And our reality is that we are based in Juneau, Alaska, which is an amazing place to live, but it's obviously not the center of the deal flow universe. And we have, I'd say, maybe a mild version of the problem that a lot of U.S. public plans have, public pension plans, which is that it's very hard for us to pay people properly. It's been very hard for us to open an office outside of Juneau. And so hiring and retaining the best people is a challenge for us. I think it's a challenge that will ultimately derail our success. We've been able to get away with it for almost nine years now, but there's a lot of work to do and those long-term structural disadvantages are threatening, potentially crippling. So a lot of that tends to lend itself to someone in your position investing only in funds or even only in fund of funds. You've extended beyond that. And so despite those challenges, why have you gone out and approached co-invests and stakes and all these other ways of addressing the markets? The way we've invested to quantify a little bit is that roughly 75% of the capital we deploy is through funds in that regular way GP LP format. And when I talk to GPs and others, I emphasize that that's our central activity. And it is certainly centrally important, but it is not the most time-intensive part of what we do or the most labor-intensive. So while 75% of the capital is deployed through funds, the other 25% takes probably more like two-thirds of our time. And that's a range of activities that include co-investments, structured investments of different kinds in funds. I think the stakes business and seeding activity fall into that, into that category. And also direct investments in operating companies. We know that comes with a special set of risks, not only the obvious and identifiable ones, but a risk that relates directly to what I characterized earlier as a shortcoming, which is that we've got a very small team. So if you have a very small team in a semi-remote location and you're honest with yourself, and I hope that I am, and I certainly acknowledge that I can't be an expert in lots of different areas and that there are brilliant investors out there with differentiated, specialized skills, the logical thing to do is to invest in funds, but I think that's not enough. And what we found What I had experienced and observed before I came to the permanent fund and since is that those GP relationships have great value. 
It's a source, as I said, of intellectual capital. And we think that if we can find tactics, if we can find market opportunities in which we can be helpful to general partners, then that leads to good outcomes for everybody. So even when we're making direct investments, I haven't made a single investment here without at least talking to a general partner with specialized skills. They're not all people that we've backed as an LP, but they are all people who uh, have knowledge that I don't, whose opinion I respect. And I think we've been able to capture a lot of value there. So a different way to answer your question would be to say, there are lots of different opportunities out there and you just can't touch them all with funds. And if we can eliminate some costs on the one hand, but also add material alpha with this 25% of the portfolio, then we're doing a good job. And that's what justifies spending what I think I'm probably conservatively characterizing as two thirds of our time on a quarter of the capital. So I'm curious what that process looks like. It's you, it's probably a small number of people, and there's a big world for deals. How do you narrow the filter? Well, it's changed over time. My job has changed over time because the portfolio has changed over time. The right way to build a $12.5 billion portfolio, in my judgment, does include co-investments, direct investments, and other activity. It'll be different in the future from what it is today. But that approach also requires that you build the team along the way. So if I contrast my job on my first day of work, it was really easy because there was virtually no portfolio. And so the first direct investment we made, the first secondary purchase we made, and the first fund commitments we made got a lot of attention. And I could track these on my laptop without much trouble. The cumulative, I don't want to call it a burden because it's just the natural and embedded part of the overall ecosystem, but for lack of a better word, the burden connected with all those investments is cumulative. It grows over time. And if we take a board seat on an operating company, a board observer seat, and we are a large investor in a lot of funds, so we've got some LPAC access and responsibility, and simply through natural growth and the number of line items and an overall value, complexity grows quickly. So the dollars have grown quickly and compounded, and that's a good thing. The complexity has also grown and compounded, and that's a fundamental risk that's made it harder to manage. So your question is really about how we get there, how this filter or funnel works. It was easier at the beginning because everything was diversifying. And I did have a kind of a, I'd characterize it as sort of a backlog of relationships and some good relationships that were established through those old funds of funds and separate account relationships. It was easy to do that. Today, we need to think much more carefully, not only about where a new investment contributes to the portfolio on the margin, not only about incremental returns and diversification, but we have to budget our own time. And if there's a way to make a $10 investment with a 10% expected return, and another way to make an $8 investment with the same expected return, we need to be making the $10 investment. And so aspirationally, I'm trying to make fewer larger investments, but that has a cost and implications also for diversification and so on. What's your underwriting process for co-investments? We do invest a lot of time and energy, not only in deal selection, but in thinking about our process for deal selection. We have this synthetic infrastructure in place for sourcing, which comes in the form of deploying several billion dollars a year into funds. So the managers the managers find us. And in fact, since I started out in the business, 
working in mid-market bio shops, it's taken me some time to learn that sourcing is less important than I had imagined. But for allocators, for LPs, recognizing that you have this ecosystem of which you're a part and trying to extract from that what comes very naturally for opportunities to support the GPs seems to lead to good outcomes. Having said that, unlike in regular mid-market buyouts, bigger is not always better in the sense, to use the funnel metaphor that exists in every pitch book you've ever seen, the size of the opening the uh, volume of the funnel does matter, but I think not as much as the shape of the funnel. In other words, the process that you use to select these, the shape that we target in our process is one that's fairly flat, which is to say you have a giant mouth to this funnel, if you can picture that, yet it's a shallow funnel, maybe a little closer to a dish than a long, a long funnel. And the implication of that, you know, if you think about the slope of the funnel rather than the diameter, not to get to uh, mathematical about a simple concept. If you think about that shape and exercise a lot of energy early on to throw out the deals that don't matter, then you're recognizing the constraint that actually matters for us as allocators. And this is why some learning was required. This is a surprise for me. The results aren't a function just of the volume of opportunities. Our real constraint is our human resource constraint. How many investments can we really manage? How many can we process live and how much can we manage once they're on our balance sheet? That may not sound like a radical insight and I won't argue that it is, but I can tell you it's radically different from the way you think about it when you're running a buyout firm where deal flow is not everything but a lot. And for us, I'm reluctant to admit this because it sounds like I'm asking for uh, some sort of karmic retribution, but we have more deal flow than we can manage. We turn away outstanding opportunities every day. And that's a mistake. That's a cost, an opportunity cost that should be willing to stomach. But it's not a freebie. It is the reality because we're actively deploying capital in the form of regular way LP commitments. A different way to think about it would be that this isn't free deal flow. We're actually paying about $2 billion a year in new commitments to generate this deal flow. But the ecosystem, those relationships are worth even more than the regular way co-investments that come out of them imply because there's an enormous amount of intellectual capital that exists that resides at each one of these sponsors. If we back them, we have that belief and hopefully we're correct in that, in that assumption. And we can leverage that intellectual capital too, the domain knowledge. Even when we see deals that aren't coming to us from a sponsor, there's almost always a conversation with a sponsor that informs our judgment. And maybe, maybe that's the conversation that allows us to throw the bad deal out early, or maybe it's the one that leads us to conclude that we have to stop looking at fund XY and invest our time and energy in diligencing this big opportunity. So I probably made it sound more complicated than it is, but if you consider the fact that every allocator has this giant virtual network for sourcing, the challenge is how do you capture that value and how do you deploy your internal human resources? So for you, what are those simple criteria, the ones that you throw out quickly? Over time, I've learned to attach more value to the situational dynamics. This is something that I ignored when I thought the judgment was all about the data that, that was available to all the company data. I pay more attention to the situational analysis. Why does this sponsor need capital? Why do they need it from us? Why are we getting this call? Is this the, the 50th call or is it the first call? 
And that has to be overlaid, of course, against the skill set that that sponsor brings to the table and needs to be considered in the context of our portfolio. In other words, we have identified gaps in our portfolio that we're trying to fill. There are characteristics that we know even before we know the company. So, you know, for a very long time, we were working hard to generate deal flow in life sciences. I think there are a lot of different ways to win. And the distinction I'd point out here is that understanding the context, understanding fully the incentives of the different players, that turns out to be more determinative than I would have guessed. If you go back and look at these deals, turns out some of those factors matter a lot more than the factors that you would naturally consider, like purchase price multiples and growth rates and industry factors. That situational assessment turns out to be really important. And I think that's something that develops with time, but only with time. What from there goes into your underwriting process on a particular co-investment opportunity? Well, so practically, to get away from high-minded philosophy to the nuts and bolts, because we're human resource constrained, because we're making these tough decisions about how to allocate not only our dollars, but our people, I try to leverage that scarce resource by hiring consultants and advisors. And it is not the most efficient way to do business, but it's the best and only way that we can. We hire different consultants on every transaction. I do this looking at funds, too. And very often we'll learn things that we wouldn't otherwise uncover. But it's fair to say that for a larger than average co-investment, we typically have more than one consultant. Often we'll have two or three, an industry expert, a banker, and sometimes a private equity sort of fund consultant like a Pathway or a Stepstone. And they're hugely helpful to us. Mercer also helps us a lot. And we have this whole cloud configuration of experts that we try to deploy in an efficient way. What's a prototypical example? Maybe walk me through a single co-investment from the beginning to the end. Looking back at this last quarter, in our direct investment portfolio, we had two complete realizations and then a bunch of partial partial exits. One of the full realizations was a company that Kelso bought and controlled called USLBM. It was just sold to Bain. It was a consolidation play on housing recovery. We invested four-ish years ago, and I had the benefit, I suppose, of having worked on some housing product manufacturing businesses with Kelso in the past, and those had turned out well. It obviously helped create some momentum. But there were some obvious macro considerations that really needed, I think, more than just horsepower, a lot of invested brain power. So we hired an economic consultant to help us understand some of the risks in the housing market and in the submarkets that were relevant here and the implications for for growth and so on. I think it's possible that we would have been able to do that work on our own. We've got a few degrees in economics floating around the office, but the independence and the expertise are hugely valuable. On that same deal, though, we also used an independent private equity consultant to look at some of the fund-related considerations. Private equity consultant that was looking carefully at Kelso's history in building products, Kelso's history with this particular management team, and then a lot of independent work on the management team. And then, of course, throw in that mix an independent security firm, a background check on key managers. That's also part of the process. And maybe I left out the most important element, which is that the internal discussion that took place 
occurred over many weeks, but through a series of regular meetings. And in those meetings, our small team each contributed what they could. And everybody was involved in that decision-making process. I think that is not unique to the permanent fund, but it's turned out to be really powerful to really compel everybody to come up with an answer, not just to contribute to the thought process, but to answer the question, would you put your money in this? And when the answers are yes, and they're resounding, and there's data behind it, it seems to lead to good outcomes. So USLBM was sold to, uh, to Bain. It already looks like it's going to be a great investment for Bain too, which creates a warm feeling in my belly because you want to see everybody win. And for the company and for the management team, I think exceeded expectations in all respects. Once you made the decision to invest in that, do you do anything from a monitoring perspective over those four years or are you fairly passive? This is interesting. And one of the reasons it's hard to generalize that USLBM deal, we were entirely passive. If I added some value there, it was that we uh, agreed offer to underwrite a larger check than we intended to keep. In other words, we sort of facilitated uh, co-invest for other investors. We're not the only one out there who does that, but it is an example. It's one way that an LP can bring value to an equation and to a sponsor. But aside from that, we were completely passive. We got quarterly performance updates. If we didn't have those, I'm not sure it would have changed the outcome in any way. So maybe that's more a charitable act by the sponsor. Kelso has a uh, tendency to work closely with their LPs and it happens, it happens very naturally. But this is a passive co-investment. We have other investments where we have one or two board seats or we have an observer seat or there are difficult decisions to make along the way related to add-ons, for example. Sometimes we'll have a defined target opportunity for acquisitions for the business and the uh, management team and the sponsor don't need approval for deals that fall within that have these defined characteristics. If it's outside of those characteristics, we have a veto provision, so we're involved in the decision-making along the way. So there's a spectrum that where the ends are completely different. But one end of that spectrum of involvement for co-investors or direct investors who consider themselves LPs, as we do, is completely passive. And then in other cases, we've, and this has to happen more rarely because we've got limited resources and because the list of areas where we can really claim expertise is short by definition. You can't be an expert in a lot of areas. At the other end of the continuum, we have been involved from the founding and We've been the largest investor in several of these, several of these businesses like American Homes for Rent and Juno Therapeutics and Denali Therapeutics. I guess it would be fair to say that those deals would have happened without us, but they would have taken another form. And some investor needed to step up, write a big check, and impose on themselves the need to contribute value, but not require control. So LPs have the advantage maybe of being a little bit more humble than than some investors out there, and that has value in some of these deals. I mean, the more you talk about complexity and looking at the balance sheet, which is public and the number of line items on it, the more I scratch my head and say, wait, why are you doing all this extra activity? Because there is such a large sum of capital to put to work. And as you mentioned, you know, a small team of resources. So where do you see the value that accretes across the fund, both in knowledge and return from these one-off activities? The way that we have framed it intellectually going in is that we'll ultimately earn the highest returns on the most valuable capital we deploy. So to point to an example that's real and live today, there are many, many co-investors out there. I don't know LPs. I don't know many LPs who say they don't have an interest and an appetite for 
co-investments. And so if, say, Toma Bravo or Vista is syndicating a SaaS deal, then LPs will just sort of line up for a piece of that. Those are great managers and there are lots of great deals out there, but blended cumulatively, hard to earn very high returns on what's essentially commodity capital. But if we can deliver co-investment capital to a corner of the market that's not getting that attention, that doesn't have the long lines around the corner and the food fight for exposure, I think we can earn more attractive returns. And so a fundless sponsor will have deals that we can't access through certain sponsors. There are market opportunities that sponsors are addressing, but without adequate capital. And if we get behind them, we can share and they excess rents that can be earned there. So we think that we are paid well for that excess complexity. And I think the theory that supports that is this relates to this question of how much value are we bringing to the table. And then further, there can be areas of interest because they're objectively attractive, but maybe they're not sized or structured in a way that works for every sponsor. Duration would be an example of something that might align well in our book, but not work for a sponsor. And there are fewer of these out there in the world than I'd like, but if you, as a thought experiment, if you consider a very attractive 20-year investment that has no interim liquidity and no distributions, that doesn't work for many private equity funds or many investors. But we're providing, as I said before, for all future generations of Alaskans, they're okay. They don't mind waiting 20 years because they're not born yet. And further, they're can be some incremental diversification if we're doing something that other investors aren't. So that doesn't mean we have to fill every little every little bucket out there in the universe and every market. But if we see a big opportunity that complements our portfolio because it'll add incremental return or increase diversification on the margin, then we should pursue it. And whether we do it through a fund or a co-investment or a direct investment is a tactical question. The more important question, the more important underlying question is how attractive is the investment opportunity. So we'll invest the extra time and effort to do that. And we've also found that some of those off the run or less obvious opportunities are not only more attractive because they bring diversification and absolute returns to the portfolio, but they're just less crowded so we can get more of it. And by the time they're crowded, the expected returns are probably lower anyway. I'm curious what happens when something goes wrong in one of these investments. So it's, it's one thing to say you're spending more than half your time on these investments, on making these investments, but notoriously in private equity, if something goes wrong, it then really takes up your time. So how have you managed the inevitable problem, children? Great question to ask. There are fewer of those happily today than there would be if this was an eight-year period ending in 2013 or something like that. So we've got the benefit of strong tailwinds. Yet there's still headaches along the way, and that's uh, how and when we've tested our resources. It's, those, it's when those bottlenecks exist. If I'm plugging away on a Sunday afternoon, I know that we're probably inadequately resourced. And if it's every Sunday afternoon, something has gone wrong. But what I recognize and fear is that, and this is a fear every investor shares, but it's just particularly acute given the size, complexity of our portfolio and the relatively small size of the team, I fear a downturn where the number of problem children grows. Truly, I'm not overstating this. We haven't had many of those so far. But even a well-functioning company, if we have a board seat, if we're engaged, or if there are liquidity considerations or conflicts to deal with, they're time-consuming. And so that has been cumulative. When I said that the burden grows over time, 
that's especially true if we're inclined as we are to make investments that have a very long duration, then that compounding problem is just a little bit greater because you have fewer, fewer children going off to college, so more children in the house to cause problems. You touched earlier on stakes business and seeding businesses, and you've been involved in both. would love you to share your perspective on the attractiveness or the relative attractiveness of those two particular opportunity sets. They've got several things in common. I, conceptually, I think both are interesting for a number of reasons, but those reasons include the fact that there is a natural convention to think about a hard distinction in the private equity universe, the private markets universe between GP and LP. But like most things in life, the reality is a little bit more complicated. And I think that oversimplification has a cost connected to it. I think it's important to recognize that there are occasionally, not in every deal, but there are often opportunities where a GP and an LP together can create more value for the overall ecosystem the argument for a bigger pie. And it becomes less an argument about how you divide it up than how to how to grow that pie. And I think the stakes business is one example of the blurring of that distinction between GP and LP. And it made sense to us for a number of reasons when we started doing this in 2013. And those reasons included the fact that it's a lot more fun to get paid fees than to pay fees. And in a way, it was sort of an element, it was a way to fight back on this fee concern that I think other LPs address in a different way, which is a ferocious negotiation or a colossal commitment. They get beaten up by their boards. I think we're ahead of that. Maybe you could say we're conflicted. I would say that we're investing in the overall ecosystem. If we have a cash flow stream that's coming to us from other LPs, I guess it's a little bit of a reimbursement on the fees that we're paying, and it's a cash flow stream that's extraordinarily predictable. That stakes business looks pretty interesting. I would say that it institutionalized, it matured very quickly, maybe faster than I would have expected, and that has implications for pricing. And you know, as with, I said that the line for co-investments goes around the block, it's a little bit like that in the stakes business. It's a shorter line, but it doesn't take very many parties in a competitive environment to drive up prices. So because of the pricing environment and because of the time intensity, we haven't invested a lot of time and energy in stakes recently. I view the seating business as a challenging but more sustainable opportunity. More sustainable only because kind of by definition, if your stakes strategy is oriented around backing the highest quality managers in a particular area, that's a finite group. And they're typically, well, again, definitionally, the stakes business is mature, established, and one would hope high quality managers. That's not an infinite universe. But looking forward in time, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that there's almost an infinite supply of future venture and private equity managers. And if you think that you can earn higher returns on capital that has higher value to the recipient, which I think is the point that I was making earlier, and I believe is the case today, if we're bringing capital to a manager that's having trouble raising money, we should earn attractive returns on that. The form of those returns has a component that's perfectly aligned with them, which is a share in their ownership. And that convergence of incentives and activity between LPs and GPs, I think is really promising. By the way, the line around the block for Toma Bravo's co-investments 
as a source of competition among LPs. People aren't lining up around the block to co-invest alongside first-time or second-time funds. I hope they will be in the future when they're on fund with a bigger Roman numeral, but they need our capital. That's the way all co-investments were back in 2005, 2006, and before that, and until fairly recently, co-investment capital solved a problem for a GP, and being there to solve a problem is something that you can get well paid for. Lining up to fight for a little piece of a co-investment, I don't think you should get paid as much for that, and I don't think that's the way the market rewards that behavior. I'd love to talk about some of your perspectives on the environment. And I guess the most notable one right now is valuation and leverage. And how are you thinking about investments knowing that going in that we're at pretty high multiples on purchase prices and high degree of leverage on the companies? Well, I hope I'm not alone in this. I have been thinking for many years and been wrong that there'd be some massive market that would bring purchase price and leverage multiples back down to normal. And every time you turn around and look, it's a little bit more, I would say a little bit scarier, a little bit. The challenge is growing as those uh, multiples grow, it becomes harder and harder to earn returns. I saw yesterday that the CAPE ratio and the time that have been at the permanent fund roughly in about eight years has gone from about 19 to, I don't know, 32, 33, something like that now. And that can't be a long-term positive for return. So we don't want to be the ones who are caught holding the bag with a huge lead with a giant levered portfolio in an economic downturn. And we manage that risk largely through diversification, but also by investing in companies that we think will ultimately be okay. And growth capital and venture, for example, while it would be delusional to assume that there's just fundamentally less risk in venture and growth than in, say, buyouts. There are different kinds of risks. And if we are lucky enough to back a better company or a better business model, let's say a promising SaaS company with 10 bidders, even if you pay a full price for that, let's say it differently, even if you overpay for that asset, if it's a really high quality business, you might take a beating on interim valuations But in private markets, we don't care very much about those interim valuations. And one of the risks that we can take, and for that reason, I'd say it's a risk that at the permanent fund we're seeking, we embrace, is duration. So a high-quality company that trades at 28 times EBITDA and then gets marked down to 15 times EBITDA, that will beat up a portfolio on an interim basis. But it doesn't really matter if you're holding it until it either grows into its value by increasing EBITDA or multiples are cyclical and we can wait some of those things out. Of course, if we're investing through funds, we have less control over that timing, but the concepts still apply. And on the margin, since 25% of what we deploy and much more than 25% of what we own is our assets over which we have more control, more control over the timing of our exit, that gives us some flexibility to play through those bad periods. So yes, leverage is ridiculous. Purchase price multiples are crazy. It's hard to justify a lot of what we see out there. We manage it through diversification. We manage it through sensible pacing. One of the easiest things to get right for LPs, but still the thing that almost everybody seems to get wrong is being disciplined about pacing because there's so many structural mechanisms that push us as limiteds to increase our pacing in hot markets, to increase our pacing precisely when you shouldn't. If you can resist those temptations, if you can fight those structural incentives related to funding ratios and general 
deal velocity and enthusiasm, maybe the volume of the pitch from a marketing person at a private equity firm. All these structural things seem to compel investors to deploy too much capital at the wrong time. If we manage that pacing, we're doing a good job. So diversification, we manage the pacing, and then hopefully through selection, selection of great managers who are disciplined and patient, and selection of deals where we know we can be patient and hope to be disciplined, those factors together will protect us in a downturn. It won't keep us from mark-to-market losses, and it won't keep the economy from damaging our portfolio directly and indirectly, but we think it avoids disaster. What are some of the other ways that you've thought about kind of incrementally trying to add value or reduce risk in your portfolio of private investments? I gave away the best and easy trick, which is pacing, but I promise you everybody will ignore me. What we're trying to do beyond those factors like pacing and diversification and careful diligence and selection, all those things together should eliminate a lot of risk. We're trying to build exposure in areas that we think are defensive or just fit the permanent fund's relative advantages and and disadvantages well. And so to make that sound less abstract, what I mean is that we're identifying market opportunities that have characteristics that align well with what we're trying to do, longer duration, areas where you can be rewarded for patience, and hopefully areas where fundamental value of the underlying assets protects you from downturns. That could either be by seeking low-risk asset-backed strategies. We were fairly aggressive in single-family rentals, for example, because we thought housing prices had a lot of room to move upwards. And if we were wrong about that, that was okay. We owned these houses. We could continue to rent them for a long period of time. At the other end of the risk continuum, we've leaned fairly aggressively into life sciences. That's a macro thematic judgment. We know that it increases the overall beta of our portfolio if it could be measured. But again, we think we're backing the right companies with the right long-term outlook. We can fight through or ignore the interim valuation changes. As you look out over the next bunch of years, maybe your next six, seven, eight years at Alaska, how are you trying to innovate on your portfolio and what would you like to do next? If I look at our existing portfolio, to start with our existing portfolio, there's clearly room for us to be more thoughtful and analytical about the data that we gather and don't manage very well. I said when I first started, it was easy and that's true. I could track everything on my on my laptop. I'd say that today the portfolio probably exceeds my personal ability to manage and monitor it and probably the capabilities of my laptop. So there is data there that's useful. We're not capturing, we're not applying the embedded value there. We can be more thoughtful about diversification. There are a lot of things we can do with the existing portfolio. There are ways to monetize assets in ways that are obvious and some that are less common. We've sold assets in the secondary market three times in the last eight years because we thought there was a at least a temporary premium attached to certain assets, and in particular to, to a collection, to a portfolio of assets that could be aggressively levered, which is kind of taking the opposite side of that leverage, the multiple concern, the multiple trade that we talked about. You know, If you use that leverage, maybe it's a little less scary. And we're effectively using it by exiting in a way that allowed us to capture returns that are amplified by the banks. There is that trade-off you mentioned earlier of, you know, it's not so bad if you're buying at a high multiple, if you have a business that's going to go through it. And in this case, selling secondary interests in businesses because they're priced 
a little bit higher than you thought. How do you weigh those two and decide how to act? I would say that we aren't making any investments with a plan to exit in the near term. And that's a luxury that my colleagues in on our on our credit desk, for example, don't have. You know, they need to trade. It's their business. So we buy assets that we think we can hold forever. And it would only be if there's an unusual market distortion in our judgment that we would sell early. And, and that action has to be considered in the context of that most important need to maintain a diversified portfolio. And of course, we're thinking about opportunity cost all the time. So on every trade, there's somebody on both sides. When we've sold our secondary interests, they've been to smart, informed buyers, but smart, informed buyers that have a different collection of incentives, who in each of those cases, for example, had incentives to focus on IRR over MOIC, IRR versus cash on cash multiples. And I think they had some advantages we don't. Like, for example, they had access to some sources of leverage that we're not applying ourselves. So they could make a deal, make a collection of assets that didn't make perfect sense for us. They could make it work for them and presumably for their LPs. So we're making decisions like every investor along the way based on the marginal risk of the assets we're holding and the alternative alternative sources for capital. Part of our thinking behind each of these secondary sales, for example, was that we have identified other areas, other ways to deploy capital that we think translate to more value for the permanent fund in the long run. In other words, an asset that we own through an expensive fund structure that we can replace with a direct investment that has no fees attached to it in an area, in a strategy or category or sector of the economy in which we really believe that's a good trade for us. And so that's happened a few times. Our first secondary trade was executed for a completely different reason. We bought secondary assets and that's because we were launching the program and that's a great way. And it's the only secondary asset acquisition that we've done because of a view on pricing. But there it made perfect sense because we were able to eliminate some of that kind of one asset risk that we'd otherwise have at the beginning of the life of the fund. That combined with some early co-investments, small because we wanted to prove that it worked, but a combination of small co-investments and the secondary purchase also allowed us to avoid a J-curve because part of the challenge, part of the risk of building a piling $12 billion portfolio on what was then a $45 billion fund is that we destroy the near-term returns. And in spite of what I said about duration, that J-curve is a real problem. And I think we were rightly worried that we might undermine the conviction that our board had in private markets if we showed up for the first eight quarters with negative numbers. So secondary trade, some small co-investments, I think that set things on the right track and we've continued on that. You know, I think the last thing I want to ask you about is talent. You've mentioned being resource constrained, being in Juno, and I'm curious how you thought about managing and maintaining a team sufficiently talented that you can make these investments over time? It is a real challenge. The uh, funny thing about working in Juno is that the merits of being here are subjective, which is to say not everybody will have the same point of view. And when I came out here, it wasn't only because it was a great, I think, kind of the optimal platform for building private markets program. It wasn't only because I'd worked on direct investments with Marcus before, and it wasn't only because I liked 
my colleagues, it was that being in Alaska is a great life experience. It was fun for me. I thought it was an adventure and will continue to be. Now I know from recruiting that that's a minority position. I had kind of imagined, I guess, that, I don't know, half the people in the world would agree with me and half the people would think that it was a little bit crazy. Turns out it's more like 80%. Maybe it's nine out of 10 that think it's a little bit crazy. So we're recruiting from, let's call it, to be honest, one out of 10, you know, 10% of the population thinks coming to Alaska is either neutral or positive. So we've got to find those people. A lot of them are fly fishermen or have some other reason for wanting to be out here. And shrinking the pool, it either increases the challenge or decreases the quality of the group. I hope it's just increased the challenge and we've been able to hire good people. But if you're not paying them well, you're compounding that problem. And I have to concede that we've got both those things wrong. It was our plan going back eight years ago. I would say there was a plan even before I got here to introduce an incentive comp, variable comp program that's a little bit more market-oriented and open some sort of office, have some kind of presence outside of Juno because it's especially important in these deal flow-driven activities like co-investments and secondaries. And it's still the plan to do those things. We still haven't succeeded in doing it because it turns out that those areas, HR, let's call it, well, compensation issues and geography are two topics that the politicians that the legislature really cares about. And it's important to say this because it's one of the great merits, the great things about working at the Permanent Fund is that we don't have any political influence in our investment decision-making. That means that our job is more fun. We don't have to be distracted by those things, but it also, I think, unquestionably leads to worse outcomes when political and policy objectives are trying to be met through investing. I think if you look at a lot of public pension plans, you see the damage that that causes. So we don't have that. That's a great thing. However, I'm reminded I work for the government a couple of times a week, and usually those reminders revolve around hiring. It might be that it takes 18 months to get approval for, because we have to go through a legislative budgeting and approval process to get approval for an extra FTE, or it might just be that's a lot to pay this is an imaginary legislator who I'll probably have to talk to in real life sometime. They would say, why do you want to pay some uh, bean counter from New York all this money? The governor's working for 120 grand a year and he's the governor. And by the way, we've got a lot of state troopers and math teachers and others who deserve to get paid. Does somebody really need this? And the argument that, well, let's market or the argument that a structural disadvantage will hurt us in the long run, those aren't super compelling. And in the context in which politicians are making decisions really kind of irrelevant. So our plan to have an office outside of Juno has been deferred or derailed, but COVID's changed all the rules. So who knows? I expect that we're going to have at least three people working remotely um, and permanently in the future. Not quite the same as having an office in, say, 299 Park Avenue, which is a building we own, but I'm not allowed to occupy space there. Uh, it's not the same as having that permanent presence, but it would have value. And similarly, I think we've we finally introduced an incentive comp plan that's worth something to the investment team and isn't offensive to the legislators. So I guess like a lot of political outcomes, it's a compromise, but hopefully it gets us to where we need to be. And Steve, before I turn to a couple of closing questions, there's always a question of when you're in the seat, you're doing senior level things in private equity. You know, how long are your legs to run this race with all the constraints around you and the opportunities you have to pursue now that you've built this program out? It's been a great experience working here, and the reasons that I joined still apply. It's still a 
tremendous platform for for long-term investing. And I was sure then that we had the tools, that environment, the characteristics of the permanent fund and my background and the rest of the investment team, that was enough to win, to outperform. I was sure that that was the case. And I think we've been able to demonstrate over the last eight years that that is the case. However, these structural disadvantages like compensation, like geography, those will ultimately prevail. And I'm not sure I've been successful in convincing others that that's a real problem because unless you're in the middle of it, kind of hard to appreciate that something that looks like it's working really well is actually broken because that broken element hasn't uh, surfaced yet. It's like a broken jar in the back of a cabinet. You don't know it's a mess until you until you get back there. I would say that if we're able to deliver those resources, which really just translate into money and focus, a larger team, a well-paid team, if we can't deliver those resources, then we won't win. And I'm not really interested in sticking around if we don't have the tools to win. I know we had it eight years ago. I hope we can prevail over time. So we'll either make some changes or I guess the risk is that the team sort of dissipates. And I guess I would expect smart investors to go where they can achieve what they're trying to achieve. What I'm trying to achieve is great returns. So we don't need a lot of tools to do that. All right, Steve, I want to turn to a couple of closing questions what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? And I have a feeling I know where you're going to go with this. Yeah, well, that's an easy one because I already answered it. I like to ski. I like to snowboard. I Nordic ski here. I hunt. I fish. I bike. I guess the common denominator there is that they're all outdoors. I really do like to do things outdoors. I lived in New York City longer than I've lived here in, in Juneau. So you can kind of make it work in Central Park, but here it really embraces you. And that's been fun. I worried a little bit about the hunting in Central Park, but we'll leave that one aside. <laughs> What's your most important daily habit? Maybe I'm stuck in a mental rut here. I think it relates to the question you just asked me. I like to exercise. In fact, I think I would say that getting some exercise outdoors is really important. So I find personally I need some exercise. I think it helps with mental health. It helps with physical health. It probably helps with behavior. My wife tells me I'm a better husband after <laughs> after I've uh, worked out, and I think that's probably a biochemical reality. So some form of movement, especially if it can be outdoors, I think that's something that everybody would benefit from. What's your biggest personal pet peeve? My kids would tell you, I hate recurring periodic billing on my credit card. I mean, I hate it vehemently for the same reason that I love it as an investor. These business models with recurring revenue are great if you're on the right side of the trade, but the $2.99 monthly line items that show up on my credit card bill with a family of four, it really drives me crazy. And as you know, trying to unwind those things, trying to cancel those subscriptions can be a lot of work, especially maybe not worth $2.99 a month to cancel, which is the beauty of the business model. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? So here's one that just came up this morning, actually. We're investing in 15 or 20 funds a year. So we're negotiating, in spite of what I said about the convergence of GPs and LPs and wanting to team up with GPs and everything, there is a negotiation and a negotiation around the LPA. And the metaphor that comes up endlessly is that it's a pendulum. Every time I work with a different lawyer, they'll say something about how the pendulum has now swung a little bit more to the GPs or a little more to the LPs. And the reason I hate that metaphor is not just because because I hear it a lot, it's because it implies a zero-sum game. It implies that if you're on one side of the pendulum, you're winning or losing. And I think the better framework is to look for opportunities to create value in the ecosystem and make a lot more money together. 
And that may sound a little bit starry-eyed, but it's real life. You can negotiate one element of an LPA, but if your overall objective is to create a fund that has the tools it needs to deliver, to win and make money for us, then that's a good outcome. So I would like to get away from that pendulum metaphor. I think the odds are still pretty long. What's your favorite book? Today, I would say maybe The Selfish Gene, Richard Dawkins. The Selfish Gene is a great book. It's been around for a long time, but it's very accessible science, but still foundational. And I guess this sounds like a crazy overstatement, but I mean, it basically explains life, not just human life, all life, right? So that seems like a book worth reading. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Well, I said that I grew up in an academically oriented household. That's true. I mean, I would say that my parents have always, and they've been infused with this, it's in my DNA, they value knowledge and education just for the sake of knowledge. It doesn't have to have a practical application. And I share that. I think that applications relevance emerges over time, but I think there's value and pleasure just in knowing something. I mean, my dad, my dad's a surgeon. He's retired now. The year after he retired, he went to work in Nepal for a few years with, with my mom. Now he's back. He's 85 years old. He's back from Nepal, but he's 85 years old. And he just wrote a book on the evolutionary basis of morality and published it. And he's taking Japanese at Princeton. So like, he's not bored. He's learning because it's fun to learn. I don't know if he's going to be able to use that Japanese anytime soon, but I share that. I think it just kind of leads to a richer life. Craig, I one more for you before I ask you about mistakes for our premium members. And that is what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? So here's one that I still wrestle with, which is to say, Maybe I've learned the lesson, but there's still some learning to do. What I've discovered seems obvious to some people, which is that it's okay to ask for help, that it's a good thing, that you get the better outcomes if you engage other people. And the sort of goofy example would be the cliche of a couple driving a car and the man refuses to ask for directions. Because That stereotype exists for a reason, and I think it has relevance to personal and professional relationships. And I've realized slowly over time, because I've really enjoyed helping other people advance professionally to make it more specific, because helping people sounds saccharine. But because I've enjoyed it, I realize other people really do want to help you. If you ask somebody for advice, it's not painful for them. People normally genuinely want to engage. So I find I have to constantly remind myself of that. And the alternative is that you just work really hard by yourself, facing straight ahead in a dark room. And I think that is a less pleasant process. And I think it leads to worse outcomes. So that's a long way of saying asking for help, not being helpless, but being willing to ask for help is a good thing. Steve, thanks so much. No, oh, thanks, Ted. That was really, really fun and interesting. Thank you for doing it and having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.